Welcome to the weekly podcast channel for the Wilmington Church of Christ. We hope that this channel inspires and encourages you to take the gospel to all people, transforms hearts to be like Christ, and trains disciples to make disciples. For more information about our church, please go to wcconline.org. Enjoy the message. Today we are going to talk about politics, and I kind of wish we were just only online, and that way nobody could throw anything at me when I say something against your politics. Jacob, uh, our lead guitarist, he said, Dale, did you notice before you walked out that some people are sitting on the right and some people are sitting on the left? Thank you for laughing. Thank you at home for giggling at that joke one time. As Christians, we have a calling a calling to be influencers and shapers of our culture so it can be used for the purpose of God. We have an obligation to pray for our leaders and for our country so our country will have peace and be prosperous so it's good for us and our families. And we live in what I believe is the best country in the world. And that doesn't mean... Hey, just wait till I say something you don't like. Uh, we live in the best country in the world, but that doesn't mean we're a perfect country. So that means as Christians, as Christ followers, our duty is to help make it better. And by me saying it's the best country in the world doesn't mean I'm blind to our country's flaws and not critical of the things that we're not doing right. We haven't been perfect ever. We, we don't have perfection in our history in, or in our policies, and we don't have perfection now in our policies. So our job as a Christian is to help shape the culture, culture matters, and help shape it toward God's purposes so it can be used by Him. So if you are gifted in politics, if you are gifted in setting policy or passing legislation or getting people to follow you, use those talents for God in the political realm. Uh, go, go ahead and we need, we need Christians in every place that people are and that people work. So we need Christian teachers and we need Christian lawyers and we need Christian doctors and we need Christians in the political realm being senators and representatives. And we need Christians everywhere because we are called to shape the culture. And there's no telling where God might use you if you use your gifts for Him in that way. God has this uh, history of using people, using His followers in places in the political realm, in places of authority to shape whole countries, to shape the culture. When Joseph was betrayed by his brothers and sold into slavery, God used that for good. And Joseph became second in command of all Egypt and saved that nation when they suffered a major drought for seven years. Moses was supposed to be one of the children Pharaoh said throw into the river and drown and yet his mom through a miraculous salvation placed him in a basket and the king of Egypt's daughter found Moses took Moses this Hebrew slave into the palace and raised him under and and helped and raised him in the Egyptian palace as an Egyptian prince while he was being taught Hebrew culture from his mother and God used him to rescue the people out of slavery and led them out of Israel. And then uh, Esther. Esther was placed right next to the king so that when uh, evil policies were put in place to kill all the Jews in the land, Esther was able to intervene. This is the political realm she's in. Intervene where the king now passed a decree that Jews could defend themselves and it saved the nation. 
Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And the king noticed that his cupbearer, the one who checks his food for poison, didn't seem right that day. And this is in the political realm. And the king said to Nehemiah, hey, why are you downcast? I'm kind of worried about this. And Nehemiah said, my home country, my home city, Jerusalem, has no protection around it. There's no wall around it. And the king said, go Go home, build that wall and protect your nation, protect your city, protect Jerusalem and the temple. Listen, God has a way of placing people in political in the political realm to change and shape a culture. So if you have a desire or you have a calling from God to go into politics, you should do it. You should use your Christian influence first, your following of Christ first, and your obligation to this nation second. It's the same with all Christians. We are obligated to continue to work out our lifestyle of following Christ in the political realm. And we shouldn't hold back because there's no telling where God might use you as well. But I think some of you will find relief in knowing that our citizenship to the United States actually comes second to our citizenship of heaven. We are called by Christ to be citizens of heaven first. Philippians chapter 3 says our citizenship is in heaven. And from it, we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the perfect candidate, the only perfect candidate. So I think some of us might find relief in knowing that being a citizen in the United States has to come second to being a citizen of heaven. I think some of you might find relief if you don't want to be associated with either political party because neither political party is perfect, and we need to be critical of the things that Republicans do wrong, and we need to be critical of the things Democrats do wrong, I think you might find relief to know that because you're a citizen in heaven first, and your authority comes from Christ, you don't have to be all in with the Democrats, and you don't have to be all in with the Republicans, even though we have an obligation to participate in a party or the other. But isn't it a relief to know that you don't have to be and labeled as your identity, Republican or Democrat, because we are labeled Christ followers? Some of you might find it a relief to know this. You're, you're thinking to yourself as you get ready to go to the election, man, I have to decide between the lesser of two evils. Or in this case, this year, you have to actually decide between the evil of two lessers. Isn't it a relief to know that unless Jesus Christ is running as your candidate, you won't ever have a perfect candidate? Isn't it a relief to know that unless Jesus is on the ballot, you always, and for the history of the world, for the future and in the past, you can't ever go find a candidate that was perfect in character? Isn't it a relief to know that you always have to have this choice between the lesser of two evils, because no candidate ever has perfect character. It's a relief to know that because now you can be critical of the things candidates do well and critical of the things candidates don't do well and try to make the best choice that's going to bring about the justice of God in the best way possible. Listen, if you go forward with your eyes open God is so cool that he gave us this command to bring about justice in this world, in his name, but he doesn't always tell us how to get there. So as you study the two political parties, you might find that they are right about one, one political party is right about some things and wrong about some others, and you have to decide 
based on your investigation of policies and your investigation of how they're going to go about bringing about justice, because there are Christians in the Democratic Party and there are Christians in the Republican Party. We all want justice. We all want God's justice. You have to be critical and decide which party is going to bring about the justice that's going to give glory to God. So if you feel like the Democratic Party can do that best, at least be eyes wide open about all the things they do wrong and be critical about the things they do wrong. If you feel like the Republican Party is going to do that best, at least be eyes wide open about all the things they're doing wrong and critical of the things they're doing wrong and then vote with a way that you think will bring about justice of God. Listen, there is no party that is going to get everything right. And I don't think we should be one issue positive vote. So I don't think there should be one issue for one party that you say, hey, I'm going to go because that they do this one issue well. I don't think you should do that because they might do one issue really well and then be really messed up on a whole bunch of other issues. But I do think you might be able to say there is one issue that's going to disqualify a candidate or a party. Listen, character matters. And so if you find one issue where the candidate is so flawed in character that you say, I cannot vote for him, that is a disqualifying issue. I can no longer vote for that because there is one issue that disqualifies that person for leadership. You have to, you have to follow that to the best of your ability in your conscience because you think that's going to bring the most glory to God. And listen, the lives of babies matter. And so if you find a candidate that declares that killing babies in their mother's room is a good thing, you might say that one policy is enough to disqualify a person from office. And then you have to vote. Then you have to vote your conscience. But it doesn't matter, on the one hand, which candidate you pick because neither one of them are perfect. And it does matter, on the other hand, because our obligation as Christ followers is to do the best for our country and the world we live in. I like how one preacher says, tell as many people as you can the good reasons. Now listen, the good reasons, that means you've, you've gone through some of the policies, both good and bad, both sides have. The good reasons why you are disaffected with the whole thing. And then go to the polls and take a burden-bearing, proactive risk rather than staying home and taking a burden-dropping, reactive risk. Be utterly devoted to Jesus and His mission does not allow you to sit out on election day, but it does mean we remember as we go that we are citizens of heaven and we are trying to do the best for our country by voting in a way that will bring about God's justice and then we kind of vote as we're not voting. And we kind of don't vote as we vote. I think that helps relieve some pressure. Because no matter who wins on November 3rd, if your party wins or your party loses, it will not cure what ails the human race. It doesn't matter in one, on one hand... Who wins on November 3rd because we will still have a heart problem, spiritual heart problem in our nation. There is no policy that will cure a spiritual heart problem. There is no candidate that will cure a spiritual heart problem. There is no law that will pass that will cure a nation of a heart problem. There is no Supreme Court justice or not Supreme Court justice placed into a, that role of authority that will cure the hearts of our nation. 
And our job as a church, our main concern is the heart of people. Our policy as a church, which is a God-given mission, is to make disciples. And so our main purpose has to be going after the heart of people, not the political aspect of the nation. Our main concern must be going in and bringing people to an affection for Jesus Christ, leading people to love Jesus Christ, planting and watering seeds of faith so that there can be Christians in this nation, not necessarily the goal of making it a Christian nation. Do you see the difference? If your goal is to make a Christian nation, then you're going to push for laws and you're going to push for people and you're going to be disappointed because the nation didn't become all of a sudden a heart-changed people. But if your goal is to increase the number of Christians in the nation, then they will help shape the culture and it will bring about greater change for the justice of God. But our priorities get out of whack when we spend so much time talking about politics instead of spending more time on our knees in prayer. Our goal is to capture people's hearts for Christ. And our responsibility after that is to do the best we can in our nation in the political realm. Our goal is to be a citizen of heaven that pursues people's hearts for Jesus and then, and then, and then decide how you're going to vote. I notice nobody has thrown anything at me, but there are still people that are looking at me mean. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, our King, gives us the prescription to go after people's hearts in such a way that it brings about real change, that it influences the culture in kingdom ways, and cures what ails us. Would you turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, verse 13? We're going to be studying the next couple of weeks as we talk about politics. We're going to be studying what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And as we go into this, we find that Jesus is actually giving us an identity and a purpose for our lives, allowing us to pursue hearts. Matthew is kind of a, uh, Matthew is a real interesting read, especially when you start thinking about the history of God's people. Matthew probably wrote his gospel for Jewish people or Jewish believers. And so they would have recognized immediately some of the themes Matthew is using that parallels the theme of the Exodus, the main story for Jewish followers of God at Jesus' time and after. There are so many parallels in Matthew that it is hard to avoid that he is retelling the Exodus story using Jesus. And and, uh, we'll start with some of the themes. Uh, For example, um, Jesus had a miraculous birth. And they would have recognized the miraculous birth, after reading, they would have recognized that it kind of matches this miraculous birth of Moses, where Moses was rescued out of the river. That's a, that's a miraculous thing done by God. Jesus, after he was born, uh, King Herod said, kill every child under two. We're trying to kill this new king. When Moses was born, there was a death of many infants as the Hebrew people were commanded by law to kill their babies in the river. Jesus 
uh, came out of Egypt. One of the ways that, that Joseph and Mary and Jesus escaped is they went to Egypt and it said the prophet is going to come out of Egypt. And Moses was the prophet that came out of Egypt. When Moses led the people out of slavery, they went through the water to get to the wilderness. And in Matthew, Jesus is baptized in the water before he's led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Israel, as they were in the wilderness, were tempted and failed the test when they were tempted by things that involve food. And the very first way Satan tempted Jesus was with food. Turn this rock into bread, and yet Jesus passed the test. Jesus was the new Israel that was totally devoted to God and did not fail the test. And the people that were reading Matthew for the first time, they would have recognized those parallels and they would have said, whoa, 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 this is the story of Exodus, but it's all about Jesus. And then there's this scene. They leave the wilderness, they head to Mount Sinai. And Matthew's very clear about what happens. The people of Israel stay at the base of the mountain and Moses goes up the mountain and he meets with God and God gives them a law, the Torah, the Ten Commandments. And Israel now had an identity and a purpose on how to live and a reason to live. God says, as he gives this law to Moses and then Moses takes it down and gives it to the people, God says, you're going to be my priests and you're going to carry out my law on earth. And as other nations look at you, they're going to be drawn to you because of the wisdom you have. And they're going to say, what nation is like Israel? They have the wisdom of God and they are close to God. They know their God. And so they were given an identity when they were given a law. Guess what Jesus does? After he comes out of the wilderness temptation, in chapter 5 when we meet him, he goes up on a mount. His disciples go with him. And Matthew's very specific when he lays this out. The people did not go with him up the mountain. The people of Israel in Jesus' day, they stayed at the foot of the mountain. They could hear what he was saying. And the disciples went up. And Jesus, the lawgiver, God's representation on earth, the exact representation of God on earth, Jesus gives the law to his disciples like God gave the law to Moses. And the disciples came down and gave it to everybody they could. Jesus is the lawgiver. He is God. And this is the story that repeats itself. And when he gives a law, this Sermon on the Mount is the way we're supposed to live. It gives us an identity and a purpose on how to live. And it is the prescription on how to pursue hearts. And in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus gives us two identities that also, uh, do, uh, at the same time, our identity also shows us how to live. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. Look at what he says. This is identity talk. You, 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 the church, you and me, Christ followers, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Two identities, two purposes wrapped up in one, salt and light. Let's start with salt. You are the salt of the earth. Now, if you read Matthew, and I encourage you to do that, you'll notice that Jesus ex expects his followers to be the salt because in chapter 4, he said, you're going to follow me and you're going to obey and I'm going to make you fishers of men. And then toward the end of chapter 5, he says, my friends, my followers are going to obey me. 
And so right here, when he gives the identity and he gives the purpose and he gives this new command as the lawgiver, he's expecting Christ followers, us, the church, to be salt and to obey what that means. Salt in Jesus's day was connected with the sacrifices in the temple. Some of the sacrifices they had to use salt on. It was connected to uh, purification rites where they would set things apart to purify them to be used for the Lord. They had to sometimes use salt in those ingredients. It was to flavor food. And Jesus even connects it to peace and friendship. Uh, Flavor your relationships with salt, he says, to lead to peace, to lead to friendship. Salt is this metaphor as a priest in your community to influence other for God's work of redemption. But notice what he doesn't say salt is. He doesn't say salt is the temple. In Jesus' day, the temple was the only holy place where you could go to meet God and where you could have a sacrifice that would purify you with God. But he doesn't say the temple is salt. He doesn't say the holy city Jerusalem is salt. He doesn't say the law, the Torah, is salt. He doesn't say the Pharisees who obeyed the law as best as, better than anybody. He doesn't say they were salt. He doesn't say Donald Trump is salt. He doesn't say the Republican Party is salt. He doesn't say Joe Biden is salt. He doesn't say the Democratic Party is salt. He doesn't say critical race theory is salt. He doesn't say gender identity is salt. None of these are salt or light. But he does say you are salt. He does say I am salt. He does say we are salt. This is a pretty big deal. Salt was also used as a preservative. It kept meat from rotting. He says, we are going to be the salt of the world. We are going to, as priests in His kingdom, help prevent moral decay. We're going to do that through love and through kindness and through sacrifice. And as humbly and as gently as we can, we are going to be the salt that prevents moral decay by giving people the Word of God. We have in our possession who God is and how He wants us to live and what is true and right and holy and also a description of what is evil and wrong and unholy. And as we take that truth to others, we help prevent moral decay. We help preserve the culture that is crashing around us. And when we do, I think people will not like us. We have the truth and we have the spirit of truth who lives within us and helps us and gives us courage to do it. But we have to do it. We are commanded, go be salt. Give this truth away. And that's why we have to do it with such love and grace. Just yesterday, some of our men met and had um, a meeting on how to be a leader in the church and how to, what a healthy elder looks like and, and, and how to influence our culture. And one of the people on that uh, video that said, hey, if you have salt in the salt shaker, it doesn't do any good until you start pouring it out on things. Jesus is calling us to be poured out as salt to preserve what is true and holy. And that's why we have to do it with love. And that's how we have to do it with gentleness. And that's why we have to do it with sacrifice. Paul says in Romans, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Pour yourself out. And this is going to be your true and proper worship. And it's pleasing to God. Martin Luther King Jr., I love this quote. He says, The church must be reminded that it's not the master of the state or the servant of the state, but rather the conscience of the state. 
we have to be poured out as salt to help prevent moral decay. Martin Luther King Jr. goes on, the church must be the guide and critic of the state, never its tool. But if the church does not recapture its prophetic zeal, it will become an irrelevant social club without moral or spiritual authority. Have you seen some of our mainline denominations in the country in a massive freefall decline because they have decided to move away from what is true and right and holy and embrace what is unholy and untrue and evil? And now they have no moral authority. They have no conscience in the state. And people are exiting in mass. There's one, there's one mainline denomination. One of the priests came out and said uh, earlier this year, they said, we can't talk about this, but we made it so much about, we have failed in sexual ethics so bad that people are leaving in droves, but we can't talk about it because if we talk about it, we have to admit that we were wrong to go against the word of God. Martin Luther King Jr. reminds us that we have to continually pour ourselves out like salt or lest we lose all our moral authority, we lose all of our influence to shape the culture. And Jesus says the same thing. He says, what happens if salt loses its saltiness? What good are you if you call yourself salt, but you don't actually preserve anything and you don't provide flavor anywhere? You're really not salt. What good are you if you call yourself a Christ follower and yet you don't act like Jesus pouring yourself out in a sacrificial way by speaking truth when it's unpopular? What are you if you call yourself a Christian if you don't pour yourself out in a sacrificial way to help preserve what is good? Jesus says there's a real danger here where you're just going to be thrown out of the kingdom because you're calling yourself something that you're not. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a pastor and a theologian who was hanged in a concentration camp for his resistance of Hitler and Nazis, knew well about being salt and poured out in a morally decaying world. And he said this, when Jesus calls his disciples the salt instead of himself, notice what else Jesus didn't say. He didn't say, I'm the salt of the world. He said, you're the salt of the world. Bonhoeffer recognizes this. He said, when Jesus calls his disciples the salt instead of himself, he transfers his efficacy on earth to them. He brings them into his work. He's saying, you're the ambassadors that have to go rule in my place. I'm going to give you the power to do it. I'm going to give you the authority to do it. And I'm going to give you the tools to do it. But you've got to go do it. You're going to be my representative everywhere you go. And Jesus doesn't call us to do anything that he hasn't already done. He poured out himself already for us, even to death. And now he tells us, you go and you make yourself a spiritual sacrifice every day, pouring yourself out like salt to flavor and preserve the world. Bonhoeffer continues. The same warning Christ gives. The call of Jesus Christ means being the salt of the earth or being destroyed. One Christian author says, go salt the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
Would you ask yourself today, would you start saying the prayer, Jesus, would you change me to be salt? Would you change me to influence and shape the world with truth? Would you change me to do it in a gentle and loving, kind, humble way? As I hold out the truth where it is unwelcome. This is how we are going to win hearts. This is how we are going to shape the culture. This is how we're going to create Christians in our nation that will further shape the culture. This is how we're going to make a difference as a church. And this is our identity and our call from God. Jesus expects us to obey. You are the salt. Now go be salty. He also says we're the light. He also says you're the light. Light in Jesus' day is connected to knowledge and truth and revelation. And there's three ways Jesus uses this metaphor when He says the light. Listen to the three metaphors. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Imagine a city that's on a hill and it's lit up. You can see it from miles around, especially when it's the only light in the area. I love driving into Cincinnati at nighttime. The skyline is beautiful. And it, is, it just warms my heart when I drive through Cincinnati at night and get out as fast as I can. Because it is beautiful to look at from the highway. It's light. You can see it forever. Jesus said that's how our Christian walk should be. People should see our light. They should see it. So what does that mean? Well, And then he says, hey, listen, it gives light to everybody in the house. It's like a lamp. And then he, and then he, he makes it really clear in case we're not getting it. Good works that people see you do is like you're lighting up the world and it points a spotlight directly to God and it draws people attention to God. So do good works so people will give glory to God. That's the light. Jesus is connecting it, I believe, to some Old Testament passages that talk about the light that is going to come to the nations. In Daniel chapter 12, it says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Well, how do you lead somebody to righteousness using your light? You have to connect them to Jesus Christ. It is the gospel explanation we give verbally and with our actions. In Isaiah chapter 51, it says, Listen to me, my people. Hear me, my nation. Instruction will go out from me, and my justice will become a light to the nations, the good deeds that we're doing. Again, in 60, verse 3, from the prophet Isaiah, Nations will come to your light, and the kings to the brightness of your dawn. Talking about Jesus Christ. Through His words and through His actions, He was like a beacon of light. He's calling us to be that same type of beacon through our words and through our actions. Listen, if you only do actions that show and reveal God's love, that is great. But if you never connect somebody to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving power of His grace, they remain, they remain in their sin and they remain in their damnation. We have to show people the love of Christ and be the light. And we have to tell people about the love of Christ and be the light. And this is how we connect them to our, to our behavior, to Jesus who died for us. Jesus was the light. He was the light that revealed what God wants us to be. And how we can rely on the Holy Spirit to reject sin and obey God. Jesus was the light who showed us how to rely on the Holy Spirit for strength to go out and do this when people don't want this. Jesus loved people who didn't want to be loved. 
And he loved people who were outcasts that other people said he shouldn't love. And he poured himself out and poured himself out and they killed him for it. This is, this is our call. To be salt and light in spite of the world maybe hating us. And this is how we're going to go after hearts to bring about a change in our culture and shape things around us. In Jesus' day, actions that brought about light were like giving uh, money to the poor, providing hospitality for a foreigner that comes into the city, helping new relationships grow, maybe helping a newly married couple build their new home, sharing with those who are suffering and visiting those in prison. I'm concerned that our isolation and fear of the coronavirus is making us more concerned about our safety than we are concerned about sharing the salt and light with others. I'm concerned that our isolation, when we pull back in on ourselves, in our homes, that we are not being Christ following in the light to go out and help people who are in need. Because we still have poor people that need food and money and shelter and clothes. And we still have people who are hurting and suffering. And when we isolate ourselves, we don't share in their suffering. We still have people who need help building and growing their relationship with each other and with God. And they need physical help in building their homes. And when we isolate ourselves, we do not go put our hands and feet into the places that are needed. I'm very concerned that we're going to use our isolation not only to give us an excuse not to bring the light, but also ruin our light for Jesus Christ. So we have to be even more creative and more intentional on how we take the light to others, especially if we're going to isolate ourselves. We have to be more intentional on how we tell people the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth to save all mankind, and He did so by sacrificing Himself on the cross, dying in our place, taking the punishment for, that was deserved for us, reserved for us on Himself, becoming a curse, becoming sin, and suffering death. And then three days later, to prove that He can defeat sin and defeat Satan and even defeat death, He was raised from the dead. I'm concerned that as we isolate ourselves more and more, we will not be taking that light and that word of truth, that gospel, with our actions and our words to other people. Listen, we, we, we are so bent towards selfishness. Even after we get saved, we have to fight against selfishness. And we're so bent against selfishness, if we don't double our efforts to take the gospel to others and double our evangelistic efforts to tell people about Jesus, we have a tendency to become just about us. We do that as a church, whether we're isolated at home or we just come into the building and we don't do anything else about Jesus. That is not our command. Our command is to take the truth and be salt, to prevent moral decay, and it's to take the light of the gospel into every nook and cranny we can. And this is how we're going to pursue hearts. And this is how we're going to change and shape our culture. This is how we're going to bring about the justice of God in our laws and in our land. And this is how we're going to have a nation of Christians. But we've got to be focused on the heart. We've got to pursue the heart. I love how 
This is a creative way. It's one of my favorite ways of sharing the love of Jesus. I love the food pack. When we get together as a church and we pack meals for somebody who needs a meal, we can, we can have people all the way from uh, grandparents to grandchildren packing and serving and saving the same thing. And you know when that food is given, it's not just given to people. They just don't say, gather around and give you free food. There's a process. And one of the, one of the, part of the process, when they give that food to somebody, they say, this is from God. This is because Jesus loves you. And it connects the action and behavior with their words of the gospel of truth. And people are drawn to that like light. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that when they see your good deeds, they will glorify your Father in heaven. This is how we get creative to give the gospel in both behavior and words. How are we doing that? If you're at home right now online, praise God, I'm glad you're here with us. If you are isolating yourself and you're staying online, what is your creative way of sharing the salt and light with others? Because this is our identity and our purpose. And if you're gathering in here, listen, you don't have to be isolated online to not share salt or light. You can come to church, you can sit in the seat, you can make it every week and still not give away the gospel of Jesus Christ. What are you doing? How are you being creative in taking the light of the gospel to others? How are you pursuing hearts? And uh, think about, evaluate yourself. Have you talked more about politics than you have prayed for our leaders? Have you talked more about what the agenda is than you have about pursuing hearts for Jesus Christ? I think we're all guilty of that. We have to use our behavior and our words be the light of the world. And Jesus expects this. He's the lawgiver. He's giving us this law and it provides our identity. You are salt. You are light. And it provides our purpose. You are salt. You are light. I love how Jesus teaches us and connects us with his purposes and his kingdom. I love how he has given us this responsibility. But because it's a real responsibility with real choices, that means we can screw it up real bad. But because we're connected to Jesus, we know where to go when we mess up and we will mess up. We go to him for forgiveness. And because we're connected to Jesus, we know what we do when we mess up other people's relationships. We go to them and ask for their forgiveness. And that humility and that humbleness and that truth connected with the words of Jesus, the gospel that he died and rose again, reveals what he's doing in our life. And we try to go after their affections for Jesus so it can do the same in theirs. We have to be the light. Jesus has called us to be salt and light. You know what we do when we hear a command of Jesus and we evaluate ourselves and we determine whether we're following Him or not? You know what we do? We run as fast as we can to meet with Him. And He has given us a ceremony to meet with Him every time we hear the Word preached. Every time we sing praise. It's called communion. He's given us a ceremony where we respond immediately by turning to Him before we go out and try to do the actions He's called us to do. And as you evaluate whether you have been pursuing people's hearts or pursuing a political agenda you'll recognize that you haven't done this perfectly and you can turn to Christ and realize that He forgave you and He's given you the strength 
the power and the courage to change. If this message has inspired you or encouraged you, we would love if you shared it with a friend. To help support ministries like this one, go to wcconline.org slash donate.